Hello, this is Toby. I've got a great episode for you today. It's a bit different from our other interviews um, in that it's a bit more philosophical and reflective, but I think it still has a very clear relevance for the world of science advice. And it's a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope you do too. Unfortunately, I do have to issue another one of my audio quality warnings because due to circumstances beyond our control, the sound quality uh, at my guest's end is not everything one might hope. I would love to be able to bring everyone on this podcast into a studio to make a professional recording or to fly out to see everyone in person. But for obvious reasons, money and diary commitments and indeed public health limitations being what they are we sometimes have to make recordings at long distances and in imperfect surroundings so we do have various technical and production tricks which ameliorate some of these challenges but when they let us down as you will hear the audio quality can end up being a little bit rough around the edges shall we say um nonetheless it's perfectly listable i think and uh, perhaps professor lopriano's lyrical Swiss-Italian accent will be soothing enough that you won't even notice. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm here with Professor Antonio Lopriano. Professor Lopriano is an Egyptologist and linguist uh, by training, and he edits two academic journals on those subjects. Meanwhile, his career in academic leadership has seen him serve in recent years as rector of the University of Basel. Uh, by the way, he's now president of Jakobs University Bremen, as president of the Swiss Academies of Arts and Sciences, and now president of ALEA, which is the European Federation of Academies of Sciences and Humanities, which makes him very indirectly in a complicated way, kind of my boss. So anyway, Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Toby. Very nice being with you today. So here's my first question, and it's nothing to do with science advice really, but I'm just interested. Someone who studies ancient Rome is a historian. Someone who studies, uh, I don't know, medieval sewage systems in Jerusalem is, is still a historian. How come historians who study ancient Egypt uh, get a special word all to themselves? How come they're Egyptologists? Well, you know, your question is more complicated than you probably thought, uh, Toby, because <laughs> the, the reason has to do with the way academic instruction was organized in last century. And for these so-called uh, special sciences or special cultural studies, like Egyptology or Assyriology, or you could go on and say Islamic studies to a certain extent, what happens is that you have a merger of very different traditions, both historical and linguistic and art historical. So you could say an Egyptologist is not really a true specialist of anything. Uh, he is a, a kind of all-around person who knows more or less how to apply this all-around knowledge to ancient Egypt. I see. So, so you are a kind of proto-multidisciplinary research team within one person. That makes sense. All right. Okay. So we're not here to talk about Egypt, sadly, or even linguistics or any of your original research background. But um, I would like to talk to you about something I know that you've taken a close interest in and something you've written about and thought about, which we might broadly describe as something like uh, the nature of knowledge, or at least the nature of knowledge in the modern world. So one dimension of this which springs to mind for everyone, I'm sure, is the impact of the digital revolution, and in particular social media. 
But what might not be immediately obvious, I think, is that you believe that this digital revolution is not just a change in the medium of storage and transmission and the consequence of that, so going from paper to electrons. You think there's something more fundamental going on here? Well, you know, so th this uh, profound change uh, that we are experiencing right now is traditionally related to something called democratization of knowledge. That is, the fact that knowledge has become more accessible to wider uh, segments of, of the population. And, and there is a, uh, a dimension to it which we might talk in detail about. There is, however, another dimension which has a little to do with the democratization, that is, with the access of specific groups to knowledge, but rather to the way in which knowledge is communicated. And the digital uh, medium has a way of transmitting knowledge that qualifies it quite different from differently from what happens in the case of the analog modes of communication. And so these are two different aspects of how actually present access to knowledge differs dramatically to, uh, to, to past or even to recent past modes of, of dealing with knowledge as a feature of society. Okay, so the democratization part is something you think has been going on for a long time, but there's also new stuff going on now that's unique to the modern age. Yes, I think we, we can perhaps describe it this way. In terms of democratization, you could say, let's look at the ownership of knowledge. Yeah? Who owns knowledge? And until very, very recently, knowledge was owned, as it were, by some institutions. You could say the church was the first owner of knowledge, beginning in the Middle Ages. And then, of course, the universities, to a certain extent, the academies, became the institutional owners of this human project called uh, knowledge. And now uh, we could say knowledge doesn't really have an institution that is specifically, um, that specifically owns it, but has become a social good. I wouldn't say a common good, because common good implies already, if you will, an ethical dimension to it, but a social good, a good that can be accessed, accessed far more easily uh, than the, uh, a, a good that was transmitted within the closed circles of specific institutions until very recently. All right. Well, I'm wondering if, um, if you take a sufficiently long-term historical view whether it's really more like coming full circle. I mean, if, so if the Middle Ages was a time when institutions really started taking on the mantle of guardians of knowledge. But if you look back prior to that, you see a time when uh, quote-unquote scientific knowledge, such as it was, was more of a, uh, a community resource, so held by every town and village and every wise man or wise woman. Isn't it more like we've, we've been through a bottleneck and we're coming out again? I would say... Uh what you are describing, Toby, is a, a, a form of access to knowledge that I would call cultural rather than scientific. That is, uh, there is a certain difference between culture and science, not because science is in any way higher, as it were, than culture, but because it occupies a different segment and, and also different function of, uh, of uh, societal life. Uh, knowledge in the sense in which we are discussing it right now is disciplined knowledge, is codified knowledge, is knowledge, as it were, that you can classify in paradigms, in methods, in disciplines that, that can justify 
its access and it, the way in which it was produced. Knowledge you are referring to, which indeed is a feature of mankind, of humankind altogether, could be found from the, the very beginning. Ancient Egyptians did have, of course, a transmission of knowledge, but of what I would call of a cultural rather than of a scientific type. And in this sense, I, I think that there's, a, there's a, a quality, there's a nature, there's a feature that characterizes modern access to knowledge in quite a different, not higher, but certainly in a different way in which knowledge was accessed by earlier societies. Okay, that makes sense. So, so in a sense, the cultural knowledge element has been kind of running on a parallel track the whole time. Precisely. And you can see it even right now. You know, so uh, we have a, a considerable segment of human activity called culture, cultural life, which is not necessarily scientific. You know, theaters, movies, uh, you know, music, right, concerts belong to the, the world of culture, not the world of science or of scholarship. And by the way, since we are talking uh, also in this corona uh, uh, times, uh, by the way, culture is probably the segment of society that has suffered the most from corona in recent and is suffering still much more than science itself, which actually has continued quite well in, in corona times. So that's just to give you a sense of how different these two human activities are. Okay, so one other thing, while we're talking in these very abstract terms, before we boil down to something more concrete, because you shied away from talking about knowledge as a common good, because that might imply an ethical dimension. So you, I think you said social good instead, although, of course, in English, we still have an ambiguity there. But I presume when you said uh, social good, you meant good in the sense of a commodity, something that can be like owned of, and traded. Entity, right. right, of right, yeah. right. Yeah, okay. So so anyway, in, in calling it democratization, isn't that already intrinsically giving it some moral value? We, I mean, we're all Democrats, right? So presumably we should applaud any kind of democratization. So do you think that, I mean, putting aside the, the main element we talked about, about the, this very modern transition to the digital world. To which I hope we shall return, right? Yeah, I certainly <laughs> hope so, yeah. But for the purposes of nailing this, do you think the long-term democratization of knowledge is unambiguously a good thing? Well, you know, you, you were also very careful in formulating your question, Toby, because you referred to, to our present understanding. So we are all Democrats, right? Uh, democratic is a word which basically only has positive connotations in the modern world, except probably in the uh, US presidential uh, campaign, right? Uh, where it, it, it has partisan connotations. In, the, in our understanding, democratic does not have partisan connotations. However, and I hope I will not appear uh, anti-democratic, uh, in what I'm going to say right now. But we also should be uh, careful in uh, what uh, kind of effect, of side effects, democratization processes have. And democratization processes have the effect of losing control of their development. So the more you uh, uh, have democracy, the less you have control about this, uh, the, what you actually uh, negotiate yeah, within society. And so what has happened in the course of history, and it's happening increasingly right now, that knowledge precisely suffers 
from this type of the quote-unquote negative sides of democratization processes, that it loses the possibility to be controlled, right? And that is to be administered, even in a, in a sensible way. So the opposition that we uh, discuss now between fact and fake news, right, is a typical result of, this, uh, of the fact that knowledge has become so popular, if you don't want to use democratic, that uh, it can also be used or rather misused, right, for purposes that are all the contrary of democratic, you could say, in the original sense. Yeah, that's clear. Although English is unfortunate because we also have two uses of the word popular, right? So popularity is not neutral either. Uh, if something is popular, that's usually meant to be a good thing. Popular, right. You could have a sequence, if you will. Democratic, popular and populist, right? And populist is even worse. Yeah, fair enough. So that's the first of the two changes you described. So the, the ongoing democratization of knowledge. And I take it from what you've said that you also think it's accelerating, that knowledge is becoming more widespread, more widely held. That is correct. It's like a warp phenomenon. Right, yes. exactly. And so then that brings us to the other dimension, which seems like a much more modern phenomenon, more new and sudden. And that's the way knowledge is communicated and shared and so on. That's very correct, uh, Toby. And that has to do not so much with the ownership, but with the authorship of knowledge. That is... Uh, who uh, produces actually knowledge and, and who is responsible for the knowledge that is being transmitted. And here you see we have a dramatic change because you could say that to make things very, very, very broad, uh, until the Reformation and until the book print, knowledge had one author and that was God. Between uh, the um, Renaissance slash the technological advance of the book print. And the modern times, knowledge had one author name, well, na the name of an author behind every book. It was a book knowledge. Now, even now we use the term, they say the book knowledge, right? The book as the instrument, the prototypical instrument for the transmission of knowledge. That means that we have a certain encyclopedic, cultural, cultural say, understanding, which is deep in us, that knowledge has uh, one individual, perhaps sometimes two, perhaps sometimes three, but very clearly identifiable individuals that are responsible for its production and also for its content of truth. Now, this paradigm, the, the paradigm of authorship of knowledge, is being now superseded by a completely new paradigm, which is the paradigm of social knowledge, in which the owner of knowledge is a community, not a single author. Who is the author of a Wikipedia uh, article? Right? It's a community that uh, constantly improves itself, as it were. Now, this type of um, divorce between the authorship of knowledge and the contents uh, of knowledge is now what is really creating also the, the difficulties of our present times in dealing with knowledge. And I referred before to fake news. That is precisely the issue. If you don't have one author that you can consider responsible 
for, for what is being written, but rather a community that, uh, that um, uh, spreads around either the best of all possible um, uh, quintessential knowledge or the deep fake, right? But if you, don't, you cannot clearly identify a specific author, then you are in a different mode of transmission of knowledge, right? And that is the second difference uh, that I was alluding uh, to at the beginning, and that is a typical feature of the digital transformation. That is something that really separates us from uh, 50 years ago in a sim similar vein in which it separates us from 500 years ago. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting to me there is, um, despite the disadvantages you just mentioned, you were quite careful not to present the whole situation as unambiguously bad. Um, because one thing that jumps out at me is that this process you're describing of gradual community evolution of knowledge seems actually to mirror the way science, the, the, the scientific community, has been proceeding anyway, internally, you know, with peer review and disputation and replication and so on. And then to take the example of a Wikipedia article, that's supposed to be its big advantage, that a piece of knowledge, um, putative knowledge, that's been generated iteratively by a community of improvers ought to be better at the end than an article written by a single person, even if that person's an authority. It's kind of deliberately harnessing the principle that the scientific community has relied on for centuries, since the Enlightenment, in fact. That's right. You see, uh, now, uh, uh, now we are entering, uh, of course, a complicated issue. Uh, that, that is the issue of quality hmm. of information, right? And there, you see, I would say, uh, it, to take the, the example of articles, of Wikipedia articles, the issue there is that the information you can find of Wikipedia can be better or worse in terms of quality than that of an author's book. But historically, in terms of where our society is heading, it is doomed to be better <laughs> because... It is doomed to be better because there will always be someone uh, at the end who will improve on something, whereas an authored uh, book is there to stay and cannot be modified any longer. So if you, if you are a believer in the Enlightenment, the way I am, and you think that ultimately the good argument will be also more successful in terms of democratic enforcement, you know, of its acceptance, then a, a good Wikipedia article is doomed to be better than a good book, precisely because it has more support behind it. Okay, the premise being that there will always be more positive influences over time than negative influences. That is correct, and I think that is uh, my, my really assumption, I would say also from a philosophical point of view, although I must concede to you that if you look at, uh, as I mentioned before, the presidential campaign in the US, if you look at, at some forms of misuse of information that we are uh, witnessing right now, you might come up with the idea that, oh God, so the, the more people uh, share information, the worse it is. You see, that's precisely this double edge of democratization that we were uh, so talking about before. But ultimately, it's a question of transition. You see, we are now uh, a little bit at the beginning of a transformative uh, situation. So it's, it's tip the, the, typical, the, the typical misuse is happening that accompanies new creations. 
and uh, which is comparable to the enthusiasm that also accompanies new creation. So now we are, we are witnessing the extreme, you know, the cyborg um, uh, approach and the fake news approach. And, and my hope, but also my conviction, is that uh, ultimately there will be a form of self-regulating, um, um, I would say, control, right? Also of digitally produced information that will make that will make the good information that is likely to become knowledge prevail over the fake news. In that case, I'm interested to ask, uh, although I don't know whether you want to commit to an answer to this question, but what do you think is the underlying tendency or law of nature or self-regulating impulse that, that gives you that conviction, that kind of optimism? Because it seems to me that the information that is most successful in terms of establishing itself as knowledge. It's not just the stuff that uh, has predictive power, but also the stuff that uh, fits well in our brains, that fits with our presuppositions and worldviews and so on. And I'm not sure whether uh, approximating truth, which I guess is what we mean when we say good quality information, right? Whether that's really a good guarantee of a piece of information flourishing as opposed to well-crafted, poor quality information. In fact, perhaps the opposite. Maybe it's easier to make a convincing lie than to convince people of an inconvenient truth. Well, I would say there is one force of nature that argues in favor or that predicts this type of evolution, Toby, and that is what Adam Smith would have called the invisible hand. And the invisible hand is what actually what causes uh, the uh, social result of individual actions to be different and not quite predictable uh, as the sum of the individual actions behind it. My reasoning here is that ultimately, since, no one, since everyone follows his or her own interests, the, uh, the, the combined force of all individual interests will be ultimately a societal, the, the societal good, if not the common good that we were talking about. That is, it will ultimately dictate a, a kind of balance, a kind of organization of society which will make the colony of bees, as Mandeville would have described it, be actually the best possible form of social aggregation. So it, there's, there's a, a kind of, if you will, you can call it religious, but I would not call it religious. I would even call it mathematical, algorithmic prediction that I'm making there. Well, I think we could probably talk about this topic on its own for the rest of the episode, but I think for the sake of the audience, we should probably move on. Um, thinking ahead, we have to chart a course sometime soon that might end up with us talking about science advice. So... Um, well, it strikes me that one of the biggest losers of this dramatic change that you've described is the old establishment, the, the universities, the academies, the institutions who were previously thought of as the guardians of knowledge. Where does all this leave them? Okay, here I will have, a, hopefully not too long, but I will, I will uh, need to be the historian that I also am as an Egyptologist. So you see, universities and academies were uh, 1,000 or 900 years ago the same thing. The same name was used to refer to universities and academies. Then what happened 
after the Reformation was that universities became confessional. And so new knowledge was not really welcome at universities. And that's how academies were created. The Académie Française or the Royal Society were the response of early enlightenment to the need to create new knowledge and not just to transmit church-recognized form of knowledge. Now, uh, then came the 19th century, and in the 19th century, there were very many university reforms that created the new university the way we know it. Actually, the three forms of university we know it, that you could say the, the more Humboldt type of university, the German, Middle European type of university, the more Anglo-Saxon type of university based on education, right? and the more French-leaning um, type of education based on technical formation. Okay, So these, these three models were created in the 19th century. Beginning with that uh, time, that, that, and I, I say this with, with all due modesty, as president of a federation of academies, we could say that the universities have become a little bit more central to societal life than academies because they have been able to interpret, as it were, the needs to create new knowledge and to transmit it in a more perhaps historically adequate way than, uh, than classical academies. And this is precisely where uh, so we stand right now. The universities, probably slightly more than academies, are confronted with the need to face this dramatic transformation. And, and, in, and so they are radically modifying the way in which uh, study, education are conceived and transmitted precisely to adapt to, to this transformation. And this is probably something that we can also talk about if you're interested in. Oh, well, yes, please. So what have universities done to adapt to the new reality? You see, universities, uh, and, and in this, universities have differed from academies in, the recent, in recent 20 years. They have had what I would call a kind of marketing term. Yeah? They have become also marketing machines. Uh, uh, so pr producers of the excellence of their own branding. And they have done so because of the importance of third-party fundings, of the importance of rankings. So that there has been a need for universities to show not so much what they are doing for humankind, but so to show what they are doing concretely better than their competitors in order to be more competitive for funds, etc. In this respect, universities are very fast in reading uh, technological changes and adapting them to their uh, also advantage, all right? And so this is why, for example, you have seen how uh, all in all very well universities have reacted to the uh, challenge of corona. You know, we, uh, we have had uh, so MOOCs for, I won't say ages, but for many years, but no one would have thought one year ago of offering a class online. Of course, the, the frontal type of instruction was absolutely, the, the, I would almost say, uh, in a regime of monopoly, the way in which European universities operated until one year ago. And now there's hardly any university in Europe that, that has not switched to the hybrid mode of communication. So this is, uh, for me, uh, to a certain extent, a proxy of the flexibility 
of universities in adapting uh, to these changes, not because they want to make, as I said, uh, so humankind better, perhaps they also do, but because they want to interpret in, in their own interest and in the interest of their uh, scholars, students and researchers, they want to interpret the change in times to their benefit, to the best of their possibility. Okay, so there's a change in the kinds of activities that universities uh, have to engage in, a change in priorities, and also a change in the, the mode of teaching to this new kind of hybrid mode. What are the implications of those changes for the knowledge itself that's being, that's being dealt with or the way it's used? Uh, the, uh, the, the prototypical professor uh, in the analog mode of transmission was an individual, was an individual author, once again, book-based knowledge, who actually transmitted a, a, a knowledge that was basically uh, presented as his or hers yeah, to a rather restricted group, the restricted group of his or her students, basically in a classroom. With a change, with a dramatic change to the online transmission, this type, both the uh, ownership, the, the authorship, of this knowledge. And also the reception has become much more fluid, of course, because you don't really quite know 100% whom you are talking to, and the student also doesn't really know 100%, or perhaps he does, or, or she does, but doesn't really uh, pay necessary attention to whether what he or she is listening to is a podcast by the professor, or is a kind of of live performance, right? So we have very different patterns of interaction at the knowledge model. So the, the, the new professor and the new student, we are at the beginning of this transformation, so are necessarily as hybrid, as it were, as the, uh, the partially analog, partially digital information they are negotiating among them. And that is, that is how the entire, if you will, the institution, what I said before, and the individuals within this institution are adapting to a, uh, to a dramatic change. Whether willingly or unwillingly, this is kind of secondary. Now, we, we, we are all adapting to, uh, to this transformation. And this is a, a transformation that makes knowledge itself different. You know, uh, I, uh, so I can give you a, a, an example, which you know, I experienced myself the day before. Yesterday, I gave a lecture on recent trends in my field of Egyptology at the University of Zürich. And I, uh, I showed an example of a simulation of uh, unwrapping a mummy, which is the result of an analysis of a chemical, physical, and computer tomography analysis of a mummy in the Museum of Turin. Uh, in Italy. Now, the interesting part of it is that through this simulation, we will, uh, we can actually see objects, so within the, uh, the, uh, the tomb, in a much clearer and more distinct way than was the case when you used to unwrap mummies apart from the ethical aspects and present them in museum. This is what I, what I imply with a different type of knowledge, that is, transmitted by the digital transformation than simply a visualization of old analog models. Well, okay, that's very interesting. I mean, that new kind of knowledge, I guess this is your point, right? It's not something that universities can lay exclusive claim to. So 
why shouldn't universities feel deeply threatened at having their role as the guardians or dispensers of knowledge taken away? Like to put it in the most extreme way possible, why should a student care at all about the teaching of their professor when they already have around them or to access at their fingertips all the knowledge that professor could ever teach them and more? And as we as we further democratize knowledge, won't this become even more of a pressing concern? Like, is this an existential threat for an institution whose role is supposed to be to protect and pass on and kind of authorize knowledge? Well, you know, the question you ask, Toby, is a question that is being asked as we speak by millions of professors and students worldwide. It's an, an extremely justified question. And believe me, this is a question that is also informing the actions of university leaderships all over the world. Indeed, through, the, um, through this change from the um, institutional to the social type of knowledge, also the role of these institutions can be questioned. Why do we need university alone? So this is precisely the difficulty of um, university activity in the digital era or in the era of simulation, because you, you can uh, actually uh, find the, the, the bits of information that you expect from a university, probably also elsewhere. So, but what you cannot find elsewhere is training, is education, probably in the most prototypical sense of uh, helping to discriminate between what is sensible, what is likely, what is plausible, and what is not plausible. And these are qualities that can only be transmitted in an analog way, can only be transmitted in the interaction between a professor and his or her students. Well, now, okay, but that, uh, if I may say, is not, not an entirely unfamiliar concept. So, so my background is in philosophy, so largely in the humanities. And when I was an undergraduate, I was always told that what you just described was what the humanities are for, basically. I mean, I had friends who were studying sciences, mostly biochemistry for some reason, and they would have like 30, 35 hours of lectures a week just learning stuff. Meanwhile, the purpose of my interactions with my professors, which was only like four or five hours a week, was supposedly to equip me with the research skills and, yeah, as you say, awareness and discrimination so that I could go and essentially access and process the knowledge myself. So, like, if you study history, say, I don't think the aim has ever been, or at least not in my lifetime, for you to learn all history from your teachers. It's to make you a scholar. Yeah, but I think that, you see, uh, what you are saying of the humanities, and indeed this is precisely also what we were told as Egyptologists uh, when I was a student, uh, uh, certainly in a far less sophisticated way than you were told from professors of philosophy, but nonetheless, uh, so in a similar vein. But uh, I have to add to it, Toby, that this is not really good news for the humanities. And here is why. Because, you see, this form of discrimination uh, of what is sensible or plausible and what is not is now a, 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 a quality or a characteristic that is required of all fields of science, precisely because of these changes that I was describing before. That is, humanities need, and this is an appeal also to our colleagues, humanities 
need to get away from this uh, uh, typical, you know, mode of complaining. Why aren't we being uh, so paid attention to? Why aren't we actually, since we are so good in transmitting uh, instruments of discrimination? Well, it's, uh, it actually it, the, 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 the boundaries between disciplines in this respect are becoming blurred. You know, talk about global challenges, talk about transdisciplinarity. I would say some of the good features originally of the humanities are now being adopted by science in general, and also some of the features of the more empirical disciplines are hopefully being adopted by humanities. Hmm. So I wonder if philosophers should be careful what they wish for or what they have wished for. Anyway, um, look, I do want to, to drag... I do want to drive the conversation, not quite kicking and screaming, onto the important topic of science advice. And this isn't such an abrupt shift of topic, I don't think, because um, when we're talking about the use and transmission of knowledge, the business of advising policymakers is another important instance of that. So perhaps it faces the same kinds of challenges. What do you think? Okay, let's perhaps start with, uh, with some semantic nuances, uh, because sometimes these are topics that get overlapped. Okay, let's say there's science, there's science advice, and there's science communication. These are three um, excellent human endeavors, but they are not the same. Uh, agreed. So, uh, they differ basically in terms of the intended audience. The intended audience of science in terms of scientific production are the peers, are your colleagues that are able to evaluate your results in basic research. The ideal audience of uh, science advice are policymakers, those who should uh, so make use of scientific uh, results for the common good. And now let's use this term of common good. And then the science communication and science communication has the, uh, the as a, an ideal audience, the general public hopefully the generally informed public, also perhaps with the, uh, with the goal of spreading the word of science, as it were, in the general population. Now, for these three uh, human endeavors, these three human endeavors do share a certain number of features, but they are not the same features. And certainly they do not require the same qualifications to be really performed in an acceptable way, because I cannot imagine that the best science advisor or science communicator is necessarily the next candidate for a Nobel Prize. Certainly not. So, the, uh, the, uh, the, the role of science advice is in fact changing in the way in which the relationship between science and policymaking is changing accordingly. And, and you could say that this is to a certain extent included in the discussions we were having before on historical evolution. Until very few decades ago, there was no real science advice because there was no real need for institutionally owned knowledge to be transmitted to any, uh, to any specific audience. You know, Max Weber distinguished between what um, sociologists and scientists do and what politicians do. Right, so these two very different things. Now, since our society is becoming much more quote-unquote democratic or, let's say, interactive, as it were, between different, different layers, of course, science advice um, uh, comes to the fore. 
But there, if I may say perhaps something that may sound provocative, you know, in order to, to be a, a good uh, science advisor, you don't necessarily have to be the best scholar or scientist in the field. Okay, uh, say why. Yes, right. I was, you know, I stopped here just, you know, to, to allow you to ask me why. <laughs> because, you see, the, uh, let's say, uh, the difference between science advice and science communication on the one hand and science, quote-unquote, pure science on the other hand, is the translational character of the former. That is, science advice and science communication represent two forms of translations. To a certain extent, Toby, you could put it on a, on a line, so on a continuum from basic research to applied research to science advice to science communication. And that's not a sequence from the better to the worse. By no means. It, it's a sequence of different audiences that are involved in that. So you could say pure science, economy, political life, social life, right? These are, these are all the consumers, as it were, of, of, possible, of possible scientific products. So a good science advisor is a science advisor that knows how to transform the, uh, the results of basic um, research into options for political decisions. Option, that is, to sort out what is, uh, so has been produced by science so that it can be um, implemented at the societal level. And society is not only science, I could add, fortunately, right? There are other concerns that play a similar role. So precisely in the same vein in which a good science communicator is someone who reads a scientific or many scientific articles and says, all right, let me see what is relevant for our societal behavior in general. How can I uh, really convey that? So it, you could say it's, it, 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 it's really a question of specialization. Right. And just as I was starting to wonder how to connect this part of the conversation with what we said before, um, I've suddenly seen where you're going with this, because of course, what you've just described is a very similar role to what you said earlier was the modern role of the professor. Precisely right. You see, since we are both members of this great family called Sapea, we can also take um, so examples from, from our daily life in this respect. You know, there are, as you know, some of us who sometimes believe or are disappointed if uh, policymakers or colleagues that are closer to policymakers don't take what pure scholars or pure science have produced at face value to convey it to the political uh, elite, uh, policymakers. But I would say, uh, Toby, thank God they don't. Because uh, the transmission of pure science at the level of complete adoption of, the, of its results for societal or political decision is not necessarily good news. That's not science. That is what is called scientism. And scientism, that is the dictatorship of science, is certainly not what we want. So we, we also need to have sufficient trust in our elected officials to be able to be in a knowledge-based society, highly informed by uh, scientific results, but also weigh them up against the background of economic, social, cultural, whatever needs that also contribute 
to our common good. So in this respect, I think we should be uh, grateful to good science advisors who are scientists, who know what they are talking about, but who also know how what they talk can be transmitted to an adequate audience for the best, in, in, having the best possible scientific results in mind. Could this be seen as a, as a potential squeeze on the whole concept of a science advisor? So, so thinking about the continuum you described, so the world is as complex as it ever was, or more so. So at one end of the continuum, you've got the people who are absolutely steeped in that complexity in their own scientific discipline, so they can do the science, do the research, and originate the knowledge and make the discoveries that we rely on. And then at the other end of the continuum, you've got the audience, which could be students, like we were talking about earlier, or the public, or in this case, policymakers, who all need dedicated, well-synthesized knowledge that they can apply for their own purposes. And in the middle of that, you've got the science advisor. And that's fine. It's a model that makes sense. Okay. But then the next point of the argument you just made is the science advisor doesn't need to be an expert on the science. They don't need to be a nuclear physicist or an epidemiologist or whatever they're advising on. All they do is analyze and synthesize and extrapolate. I say all they do. I don't mean that to be dismissive, but that's that's their skill set. But then if synthesis and analysis and extrapolation, blah, blah, are general skills by their nature, why does a science advisor even need to be a scientist at all? I mean, from the first part of our conversation, it seems reasonable to hope that in the future, higher education will evolve to prioritize those skills. And eventually any well-educated enough person will be able to do that work given the raw ingredients of information which they have access to, which we all have access to. So, for instance, a politician or a policymaker could be expected to have that skill set. So why have science advisors at all? You know, the, I think we are, we are confronted here with overlapping concepts that are specific for the domains of human activity that may sound uh, or may evoke similar connotations, but are quite different in terms of what they are meant to achieve. So the, 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 the world of policymakers is a, is a world of actions. The world of scientists is not what is usually taken to be the world of truth, but the world of plausibility. And that is something else. So truth doesn't exist, right? So what, what there is, is a, 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 the, the human uh, quest for coming as close as possible to a realistic representation of things and of the world, well knowing, of course, that we will never achieve it and that true in uh, 1300 AD, that is 700 years ago, was that the sun turns around the earth and true is now that uh, the earth uh, revolves around the sun. Now, I think that probably to say that the earth revolves around the sun is closer to the quote-unquote truth than the other way around. But the fact that still, uh, we still ride sunset and sundown means that in some kind of uh, corners of our life, 
we are still Ptolemaic and we haven't become Copernican, let alone Einsteinian. Yeah? So what I mean by that is let's be very careful not to overestimate, you see, the conclusiveness of all scientific achievements. Let's always keep an open mind in terms of, of how science uh, evolves. In this respect, I would say it's not only um, uh, difficult, but probably not useful that policymakers be confronted immediately with the results of science. Because within the, the, the concept of framing that we were discussing before, they wouldn't know how to frame it. Now you say, yes, but then, uh, so does it mean then that, that there is no way in which uh, so the epidemiologists will come to, to the fore or can, will, will be able to present the results? Well, you know, Toby, corona has precisely shown how things go. The uh, um, scientific results, we, we were actually witnessing the last months the development of scientific discourse. And you would have one eminent epidemiologist say, well, the virus is behaving this way, and another would say, no, it's rather behaving a different way. And we have all come to terms with this likely plausibility of science. And both options were different from what President Trump was saying. But both options needed to be framed in order to be presented to politicians in a critical, informed way. And that is precisely where I see the role of science advisors. The role of science advisors is that of saying, look, uh, dear federal councillor in my country in Switzerland, or dear minister, uh, or dear commissioner in the case of the EU, uh, we are faced with this problem. Now, there's a particular school of thought or particular experimental results that point into this direction. That would imply a political behavior A, and this is, this is the other direction, it's, it's a, implies a, a direction B. If you ask the epidemiologist to be uh, in charge directly of political choices, you would have a cacophony, probably, of, uh, of opinion. It's like if you asked two Egyptologists how the ancient Egyptian vocalizations uh, uh, were, and then I can tell you only mine is the correct one. So if there had to be a policy making by the EU Commission on Egyptian vocalization, which probably will not happen soon, well, I would certainly want to be the one who says how it actually should be implemented. But I am a specialist there. Then I would expect, and perhaps Professor Hoyer and Professor De Extra, whom you interviewed a couple of uh, days or weeks ago, to say, well, you know, dear Commission, let's actually make use of what Loprieno is saying, uh, and, but only careful because someone else is saying something else. So in this respect, I think we should be open also to the variety of scientific opinions that, that are being presented and produced, it, particularly in times of crisis. Yeah, that's a very, um, thank you for that sensible and nuanced account. I should also say, we might be grateful that podcasting is an audio medium so listeners did not have to see me stuff my fist into my mouth to muffle the involuntary scream when you declared that there was no such thing as truth. But as I say, you nuanced it quite nicely. No, no, no censorship here. You know, I was speaking to the philosopher, Toby. Yeah. 
Ha. Well, it was the philosopher who was listening. But um, fortunately, I, I don't think we need to have a thoroughgoing commitment to relativism about truth uh, to follow the rest of your argument. So let's save that fight for another time. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. So I'm really grateful to you for contributing uh, not only your time, but also your obvious uh, depth of thought to some of these issues. Before we finish, I, I did want to ask you one other question. We talked a little bit earlier about your optimism on the evolution of a Wikipedia article uh, with respect to quality. And you said that it was doomed to be better in the long term because the interests of many contributors would kind of converge on improvement. I wonder whether you would say the same about the broader themes that we've discussed. Um, do you think we'll look back on the current era in 50 years or 100 years' time and and identify it as the time it all went downhill when we ended up drowning in fake news and deep fakes and, dare I say it, truth relativism? Or will we have found a way to make this democratization of knowledge serve society and serve each other? This is, uh, Toby, a question that, uh, again, I can only answer as the historical linguist that I am, you know. I would say it depends on whether you, you are looking at the, in the middle term, short and middle term, or uh, in the long run. I would say that uh, we cannot truly predict the way things uh, in this respect will evolve uh, within the next five years or perhaps 10 years. But we can certainly predict, looking at historical precedents, that things will evolve for the better. Because there cannot be, since I sounded a little bit relativistic a couple of minutes ago, now I want to sound very absolutistic. There is no doubt that life in the year 2020 is much better than for human species in general, than life in 1020, let alone in the year 20, let alone in the year minus 980. So the, uh, in this respect, in the long run, the longue durée, as the French historian uh, Brodel calls it, there is no doubt that it will have a very positive turn on our lives. Whether this will happen in my life, it is uh, doubtful. Whether it will happen in yours, well, let's hope. <laughs> well, I'm pleased that listeners who are trying to guess my age now have a, a flattering data point to triangulate by. Um, Antonio Lopriano, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you very much, Tori. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.